let's start with the positives. Who would like to start? And you, you might talk about the framework, about you, your own experiences, either being inspected or as inspectors, um, however you wish to interpret it. What's good about Ofsted currently? Um... <laughs> it's the currently that I'm, I'm struggling a bit with. <laughs> Welcome to Rethinking Education. Education's critical friend. Hello once again, my fathomless friends, and welcome to another episode of the Rethinking Education podcast, Education's critical friend. My name is James Mannion, and I am delighted to welcome you to this episode, which features a really interesting conversation with two former HMIs, Frank Norris and Julie Price Grimshaw. Before I introduce Frank and Julie, a quick word, if I may, about the Rethinking Education Conference, which is back later this year on Saturday the 23rd of September at Parliament Hill School in North London. It's an amazing conference. It's a conference like no other that brings together people from all different walks of life, mainstream educators, alternative educators, children and young people, parents and carers, unschoolers, homeschoolers, you name it. Everybody all under one roof and not just in the audience, but equally represented on the platforms as far as possible. Tickets are selling like hotcakes, so get in there quickly if you want one. And we're running a special offer for friends of the Rethinking Education podcast. If you type in the promo code RE20FRIEND, that's all uppercase, RE20FRIEND, you'll get a 20% discount on the ticket price. And there are also free tickets available for people who need them. There are reduced price tickets for people who need those. And there are full price tickets available for those who can afford them. So get yourself a ticket. And there are still five days, I believe, four days left until the speaker application deadline is expiring. So if you'd like to do a talk on something or take part in a debate or a panel or something like that, get yourself over to the Rethinking Education website and fill out the application form. This podcast is brought to you by you, or if not you, by other listeners and viewers. This is a listener and viewer funded operation. If you would like to contribute to this operation so that I can spend more time doing things like this, then please feel free to visit patreon.com forward slash repod. That's R-E-P-O-D. That's if you want to make a monthly subscription or you can just pay per episode if you like. And if you'd rather just do a one-off donation, you can visit buymeacoffee.com forward slash repod. I don't actually drink coffee. Caffeine makes me go even more weird, but you can buy me a herbal tea if you so wish. If you can't afford to do either of those things, the content will always remain free. Please feel free to spread the word, spread the love on social media, or give us a thumbs up or a positive rating on a platform of your choosing. Okay, and so to today's guests. Frank Norris is a former head teacher and HMI, that stands for His Majesty's Inspector, with decades of experience inspecting and leading schools. He was initially seconded to Ofsted in 1995 for a year when he was mentored by Miriam Rosen, who would later become the chief inspector of schools at Ofsted. In 2001, 
Frank became an HMI and led inspections in a wide range of schools and settings, including secure units, independent schools, prisons, initial teacher education, as well as in primary and secondary schools in England and overseas. From 2014 to 2019, Frank was the CEO of the Co-op Academies Trust, a very highly regarded and one of the highest performing trusts for disadvantaged students, according to reports by the DfE, the Education Policy Institute and the Sutton Trust. In 2019, Frank was awarded an MBE for services to education. And he is also the co-host of the excellent Frankenstein podcast. Julie Price Grimshaw is also a former HMI with a successful track record in supporting school improvement, especially around teaching and learning. She's a school improvement advisor who has previously been an inspector of schools and of ITE, Initial Teacher Education. She was a PGC course leader at Manchester Metropolitan University and an advisor to the Teacher Development Agency and to the Department for Education. She's also been an external moderator for Initial Teacher Education and a teacher of music and English. Two years ago, Julie started blogging about Ofsted and her website, julesmusings.blog, J-U-L-E-S musings.blog, is well worth a visit. I'll just share the opening paragraph, if I may, of her most recent blog, which sets the scene for this conversation that you're about to hear quite nicely. The blog is called This Time It's Personal, and it reads, I started to blog about my views on Ofsted in October 2021. At the time, many school leaders contacted me privately to say that they were deeply concerned about the negative impact of inspections, However, all were fearful in expressing those views publicly. Since the story of Ruth Perry's tragic death hit the news in March 2023, it feels as if the floodgates have opened. For the first time, many, many school leaders, staff and parents are sharing their own personal experiences. And it's fair to say that overall, it's not pretty. Close quote. In short, when it comes to Ofsted, Frank and Julie know their onions and the powers that be and indeed everybody else should listen very carefully to what they have to say. So without further ado, I will now hand over to my recent fascinating conversation with Frank Norris and Julie Price Grimshaw. I hope you enjoy the show. Frank Norris and Julie Grimshaw, welcome to the Rethinking Education podcast. Thank you. Thanks for inviting us. Uh, I, I feel rather privileged to be here because uh, <laughs> I do I do watch these. Uh, I'm a follower of your podcast, so uh, it's great to be invited. Oh, thank you. That's nice to hear. And also, it's a return fixture, isn't it? Because I came on on your podcast with Andy Hodgkinson um, a while ago. So yeah. It's nice to return the favour. And yeah. and hi, Julie. Hello, yeah, thanks for having me. I'm really, really pleased to be with you. So yeah, thank you both for, for taking the time to join me. And in this in this short series, we'll see how long this series lasts. We've had about eight people who've agreed to speak so far, um, either head teachers or former head teachers, um, or in some cases former inspectors, which I think is is the case in your case, Frank. Have you have you been an inspector as well, Julie? Yes, yeah. You have. Right, there you go. And, and we're also going to get some young people on. So already this thing is growing legs and, <laughs> and taking taking on a different form. 
uh, a group of young people, are you familiar with the States of Mind project? A group of young people who did um, a really interesting inquiry over about two or three years where they, they looked at Ofsted and, and accountability and inspection more widely. Um, and they came up with their proposal for, for how we might um, have a more intelligent accountability system. And there's a documentary about it called The Framework. You're nodding there, Frank. Did you see that? Yeah, I watched it. It's interesting because a, a lot of the stuff that they were suggesting, I think Julie and I would agree with some of it. You know, there is definitely a sort of um, a different feel or a different viewpoint is probably the way to describe it when you're say a head teacher or your say the government for example you know wanting to have sight of what's happening in school some of the I, th I remember one or two of the suggestions probably wouldn't land that well but the majority of them did you know with me anyway yeah well i think that this is why we you know this, this work that i've been doing recently around implementation science and this idea of vertical slice teams you know, nobody's got all the answers you know young mm. people have got some really valuable important stuff to say but obviously they don't have the experience of a government minister or a head teacher or an executive head say and likewise you know we often forget what it was like to be a young person or what it was like to be a classroom teacher or a parent and that's why we need everybody to be sitting around the decision making table um looking at this thing in the round um and so anyway let, let's let's get into all that so so first of all um would you just be like to introduce yourselves let's go let's go frank and then julie um about the work that you've done uh, and what you do currently Okay. Um, well, I was a primary head teacher. I had two headships. Um, the second one, we were one of the first schools to be inspected in the mid nineties. And uh, Ofsted were then charged with trying to complete all the school inspections because this was a new sort of arrangement to inspect all schools mm. and they were running out of time. So they seconded head teachers. So I became a head teacher um, inspector for the year in 1995-96 and after that which I really enjoyed I, I really it really it, it it sharpened me up really in terms of thinking about a more broader view about what um achievement was that's probably the best word rather than attainment but achievement um so I went back to headship and, and did that for four five years and then I became an HMI and in um for Ofsted that an HMI are these sort of like <clears throat> full-time staff of Ofsted um, and I have to say that was sort of one of the proudest moments of my career um, it was a, a in those days a privy council appointment and I remember um, telling my um, father-in-law who was a who, who unfortunately died shortly after but he he was a real monarchist he he just thought this was unbelievable you know he just thought that his his daughter had married somebody who'd been appointed by the Privy Council. He just <laughs> over it. I remember the dinner we had and the, the meal we had at home. It was just like a fantastic event. And I felt incredibly proud. And actually, when I became an HMI, I was one of the few people that had actually inspected. So a lot of the inspectors um, who were doing school inspect or were involved, HMI involved in inspection, some of them didn't do many inspections. Um, some did quite a bit, but uh, uh, some didn't. Um, so I, I, I joined a team that was involved in school inspections, quality assuring it and developing frameworks. And, and really that's where my career in Ofsted ran. So I became involved in quality assuring and in drafting, coming up with ideas on how frameworks would be introduced and what would go into them. So uh, yeah, so that was really the basis of my HMI career. And I left in 2012 and then 
various things, became the CEO of a Co-op Academies Trust, which is now quite a large trust. And then in 2019, I, I left, um, uh, I, I became a certain age and thought it was the right time to leave. So I've been doing sort of advisory work ever since, really. Right. Okay. Thank you. And before we come on to you, Julie, can you just please clarify? I've never really been clear about this. What's the difference between an HMA and an Ofsted inspector? Are they that, I used to think that they were one and the same thing, but that's not the case, is it? Do you want to do that, Julie? Um, well, as you said, the HMI are the permanent, they, they civil service um, members, really. They So they... Uh, that is the only job they do. It's pretty rare for HMI to be doing anything else other than being HMI. Whereas Ofsted inspectors, I mean, at the moment, you'll find a lot of Ofsted inspectors that are uh, current head teachers or, you know, people with um, senior positions in multi-academy trusts, and they will do that, and then they'll do so many inspections a year. But HMI are the permanent staff at the um, Office of Standards for Education. I, I, can I say something, James? Because I, I, I've been thinking about a couple of the points I wanted to get across in the in the chat. Uh, because I, when you when you stop being an HMI, when you I, I stopped inspecting in 2012, and then became sort of I, I saw the reality of the inspection process from the other side, you know. And and I I I, I felt as though when I joined, I don't know if what year did you join, Julie? What year did you become an HMI? 2001 yeah so that's that's the same time as me and and i when i joined that uh group of uh hmi i i had a there were a number of people who had spent 20 years as hmi you know they had they had seen an awful lot of change you know from a period where the uh Oster didn't exist even you know into a point where it had morphed into this sort of inspection machine um and actually i think i had uh there were a really mixed bunch there were people, I remember one colleague who had taught for a long period of time in East Africa and uh, had been a head teacher. And, and, and I was just sort of, in a way, in awe of some of their insight that they were bringing, you know. And, and one of the most enjoyable periods was when, as a new HMI, you'd spend an hour, a, a week, in uh, Ofsted's head office and you'll be sitting with a, an HMI clearing reports, reading reports and and just chatting to that senior colleague. And that that was a whole week of induction, really, into not just about reports, but it was about the history of HMI work that he or she had done. You know, some of the challenges that you faced, you know, what good education felt like, you know, the sorts of stuff that, you know, it was in my whole first year was like Julie's was a whole year of induction and and all of that washed over me you know as well as the the amount of inspections I'd done before I joined but it was a it was the highest quality experience I could ever have had and included inspecting a service school in Germany you know uh, prison inspections we, we I remember visiting one of the the uh, an independent school where kids uh, parents were paying fortune for their kids to be taught at that school you know now now the experience of an hmi is very very different to the experience that julie and i had and I, as i reflect on this in my career i think wow we we really have diminished the importance of hmi 
um, because I can reflect on the differences I've had joining and what they get now. And yeah. it's not now investment in the HMI. It's about get them in, get them inspecting, and let's see how many of them can survive. And, and perhaps we can use them as they move along. But HMI, you know, are now promoted very, very quickly and very early. And that means that that, that I think diminishes the quality of the work that they do over time. Right, right. Interesting. Thank you for that. Um, I just wanted to get that off my chest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we'll maybe come back around to that later on because um, that is, it's really interesting to have that insider's perspective. So, so, Julie, would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners, please? Um, yeah, I taught um, mostly music uh, in secondary. And as, uh, although I did some cross-phase work at the time, so I was doing some music in primary as well, um, I was always quite interested in training teachers. So I was in, interested in mentoring and so on. After um, I you know, was working in, in schools, I got a chance to go and uh, run a PGCE at Manchester Met University. So I ran the music PGCE there. And I also worked on the primary B.Ed. course there. So I was doing primary and secondary, which was fantastic because I really like doing cross-phase work. Now, just before I left school to join Manchester Met University, we had what is, was then called a Section 10 inspection. And it, one of these legendary inspections that you may have heard of where you had these people in for a week and you had lay inspectors that sort of did, well, I was did strange things like go and knock on the door of parents across the road and say, what do you think of that place? And it was all quite bizarre. And, but, you know, yeah, you went through it for a week. You got two terms notice. The reason I knew we were having an inspection was two terms before I got handed a paint chart and asked to choose the colour of paint <laughs> I would like for the music rooms. And I said, offset of coming out there. And they said, yeah, <laughs> the brown envelope. We've got the brown envelope, you know. So we went through this inspection and, and it was very, it was very, very stressful building up to it. The week itself, to be honest, wasn't as bad as the build up. You know, the inspection I went through was was OK. And the music inspector, the people that were inspecting the subjects knew their, knew their stuff, didn't they? That, that was the thing. The, the guy the, that inspected me, he was very, very good. Yeah, these were, again, these were uh, national figures, many of them. Mm. You know, these were these were people that you'd heard about. I'd heard about them before I joined. And then you have the conversation with them. You realise they're ordinary people. But actually, they're, they're people that were highly regarded in their area, you know? Yeah, they, they mm. knew the stuff. And they they were, knew the stuff. So that that was actually, my experience of Ofsted at that point was, was pretty good. And then I went to run this course at MMU and I was inspected. Then my provision, my one-year PGCE was inspected. And if you thought having inspectors around for a week was bad, in those days, in initial teacher training, they were in for a year, not mm. constantly, but they were constantly coming back going away, coming back, going away. They sat in the sessions, they looked at your curriculum, they spoke to the trainees, they went out to see the trainees teach, they looked at everything and it took a full year. And by the end of that year, they knew your course very well. Mm. Now I was inspected by what, I knew this lady as one of the top figures in music education in the country. And she was pretty modest and she was always referring to people who worked in teacher training as the experts in music education. But the, the brilliant thing was every time she came in, 
we'd sit down and she'd say, um, hey, have you heard about what such and such a body's doing with steel pans? You really need to get and see this because I think it's going to be brilliant for your trainees. So everything we did was about supporting, improving, being really innovative. And sometimes she'd say, um, hey, have you tried this vocal workshop stuff that, you know, and I'd say, yeah, yeah, we did that. And, you know, it worked. It was amazing in some schools, not so good in others. And, oh, well, that's, you know, it was ever thus. We'd spend hours talking about education. We'd just spend hours and she had, she'd say, I'll, I'll tell you, I've been to some providers this week. This is what they were doing. I think you should give this a go. And that was the nature of the discussion. I thought it was fantastic. It was inspection. So there was always that, you know, you never lost sight, but this is an eight and nine. And, 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 you know, she's there to inspect me. But actually, it was the best professional development I ever had. She was just brilliant. Mm. Now, that um, job I had at MMU, which was a wonderful job, was a fixed-term contract. They couldn't guarantee it would be permanent. They thought it might, but they couldn't guarantee it. And so I, I sort of start looking around. She phoned me one day. She said, I'm just giving you the heads up. There's going to be an advert for HMI. It's a, it's a niche thing. It's music, initial teacher training. And I think you should apply. And I did. And that's, I joined Ofsted as an inspector of initial teacher training as a music specialist. Right. And, and this is in 2001. That was in 2001, and I had a year's induction during which I worked with probably some of the sharpest people I've ever met. They were amazing. And, yeah, I went to uh, I went to inspect a school in Munching Gladbach, and I did quite a lot in primary. I, I made it my business to learn about early years, and, uh, you know, I've never lost that interest in early years as a result. And uh, yeah, we had an amazing year's induction. Now, I don't know if this was the case with you, Frank, but we generally did not lead an inspection at no. all during the first year. It was considered, you know, something that you did once you'd had that experience. Yeah, so, even though I actually had done a lot more inspection, school inspection, than my mentor. But even yeah. so, I was not allowed to do an inspection, lead an inspection lead until an inspection. there was That's a right. problem. There was a problem on a primary inspection where. Um, I don't know, there'd been a complaint. And so it had to be reinspected. So I was then suddenly made to sort of reinspect a school that had recently been inspected. And that was and that was the first time I was allowed to inspect, even though I'd probably led like 50 school inspections before before that. But it it was like that was the way that you were inducted. It was it wasn't as much about process. It was more about it, I think we underestimate the intellectual element of leading inspections you know it's yes. it, it's all become in those days there was very little guidance it was all very much here's the process you know there were no grade descriptors and actually there were a lot of judgments being made and you had to sort of weave a, a story with these judgments and actually you found some colleagues found that you know pretty tough you know it wasn't just the telling of the you know making the judgments it was how does that judgment connect with another judgment we've made in another area? Aren't they, you know, and actually seeing these potential conflicts emerging within the inspection, which actually would then unravel when you try to write up the report and, and they're read by your mentor. You know, that was just a pretty, it, it was a, a, a really rigorous, very, very uh, quite academic process. Mm. And it was, it was challenging. It was challenging. It was also the fact that, sorry, just following on from that, that in the teacher training inspections that, as I say, lasted a year, 
everything was moderated and you'd go we went to the holiday inn in leicester in the middle of the roundabout you weren't you weren't allowed out of the place and everybody sat around in big teams saying right you've said this is good yes. you've said this is good let's compare your good to that good and we spent days doing this and then final moderation and i remember that you know my colleagues saying to me we're never going to send out a report that isn't right and we all agree it's right and we know that something that's outstanding there compares with something that's outstanding it might not be identical but we've got to get it right mm. and there was this i mean when you think about it, it must have been the most horrendously expensive process yes. it but i'm pretty confident it was right, you know, there was just too many people involved to get it wrong, really. And grades got changed and there was, there were arguments, to be honest, but it was very thorough. Mm, yeah, it sounds like it's, it sounds like a really good model of practice. So, 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 so there's, there's these three questions. We, we could, James, we could witter on about this experience, you know, for another <laughs> two hours. Like, well, that's, yeah. that's why we're here. Let, let's see how long we go for. So, so so, I often ask people the same three questions in this podcast. What are the positives about education broadly or about some particular topic? What are the major challenges that we face? And what uh, might be the solutions? How might we fix or overcome these challenges that we face currently? And I think it might be a good idea to to, to use those three questions as a sort of as a, as a general structure to, um, to to the rest of this conversation. But bef before we start on the positives, you've just been talking about the history of it. Um, I just wonder. So, so Ofsted came into being in 1992, didn't it? So it's just over 30 years old. And so I, I, that was, I think Major was in power in 92, but I guess it was a Thatcher idea because it would have taken a while to come to fruition. But I was just wondering, because you were a head teacher then, Frank, weren't you? I don't know if yeah. you were as well, Julie. But what 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 was happening before then? What like why did Ofsted come into being and what what problem was it was it addressing? Right. Well, this this goes back to my first year as a teacher in 1979. Um, and at a school very close to us here where my children went to school and my grandchildren are going to this school. And it, there was a bookshelf in there and there were these little booklets which were about technology in primary schools or science in secondary schools. And they all had a little red binder, a little side of them. They're all coloured sort of red or pink or something. And all laid out, they made this sort of ripple effect. So these were called the Raspberry Ripple Reports. And I remember reading one of those and thinking, who the hell produced these? This is really interesting, you know, and, and it was at a time when it was very difficult to get a sense of how much science is being taught, you know, because you would get these HMI reports, but they were not really, they were about visits to a, quite a small number of schools that not, not every school was being inspected. So I remember at the time thinking, you know, this, this looks really interesting, this stuff, this is really sort of hardcore stuff really this is different to what we were getting but at that time somebody said it would take you about 150 years before you'd meet an HMI the chances of your school being inspected were that high and so in a way everybody was very relaxed about it you know if you got an HMI inspection then nobody knew what they were going to be like and actually I, I only later found out Julie that there wasn't really any framework you know it was really just 
you know, a group of HMI would descend on a school and they try and work out, they'd all visit, they'd all have their own sort of agendas, a bit of bias here. And then these team meetings must have been a real humdinger of a team meeting. You know, somebody tried to pull all of these things together. I but see. So, so something similar was happening in the 70s. It was just like much well, less structured and much it, more infrequent. It's more like sampling rather than make, checking it, on every it, school. It, HMI was still viewed as advisors as well. There was always this debate about, you know, the, the swinging from advising into um, into inspection. And where we're at the moment, I think we're swinging back from hardcore inspection. You can feel we've we've reached that, and we're now coming back. And the interesting point is, you know, how 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 far will this sort of pendulum swing? You know, will it will it continue to be about inspection, or will it actually move more into advising? And I. And it feels as though it could settle. I hope it settles in a more sort of less contentious place where there's a, a place for HMI, really high quality inspectors to convey to a school, you know, well, actually, I've seen some fantastic practice down the road. You know, you really ought to go and see it. I think it make a difference. We still need to have some form of inspection. I still think there's something in there. So going back to the question before Ofsted, there was some inspection, but very, very thin, you know, sort of amount, the amounts of it were very small and it was all very much, I'm not saying made up as you go along, but it was, it wasn't as clearly defined as it is today. I see. Okay, right. And so I guess that the problems that they were trying to address were A, that, um, that it was sort of not that structured and B, and, th and therefore probably not that consistent and B, that there may have been schools where that were sort of slipping through the cracks say where there were, there were schools that were not being held to account enough i guess william, william tyndall do you remember william tyndall uh, the yeah the infamous primary school school in the 70s that, that became uh, i remember a panorama program or one of those programs flying the wall things that that caused quite a stir mm -hmm. and i think that was the beginnings of you know this sort of thought that there I'm not suggesting that was going on everywhere, but there were certainly I trained as a teacher in London in the 70s on, on one of the practices I had in the staff room, there was a timetable and I was told to put my name on the bottom of that timetable as a list of teachers. And that meant I could have the, uh, as a calendar that Friday I could take off. Because everybody took a Friday off every now and again. Right. You know that that and that was me training in the in the mid seventies as a teacher. You know that I think <laughs> when we talk when we talk about you know things that are better, I think the professionalism of teaching and teachers the whole things become much more professional, and there's been a much greater focus on giving the young people a really good chance. You know, and, and trying not to allow children to fail to give them a, a, a quality experience i think mm. you know, we were trying to do that but i don't think it was done in the same sort of determined way by everybody uh in, in, in quite the same way that it is today yeah it's an interesting point isn't it because we sort of you know we talk a lot about problems in education don't we and how you know like endless policy churn and so on but I don't think anyone could deny that things are better now than they were. Like I was at school in the 80s and early 90s. And I remember, my, you know, my PE teacher just used to sit and smoke cigarettes, just chain smoke cigarettes while we played football, you know, um, or, or while we did cross country running or whatever. And lots of weird stuff like that happening. Um, and without a doubt, teaching has become much more professionalized and the quality of what happens in schools 
um, has improved, I think, through that period. And, you know, maybe Ofsted has had a has had a, a, a hand in that. And so so let's which leads us neatly, actually, into this into this first of our three questions about the positives, first of all. You might interpret this question in any way that you that you wish to, but just before we sort of get into the challenges, and obviously Ofsted has been in the news a lot recently, it's a very heated debate unfolding at the moment, currently quite a one-sided debate with Ofsted themselves and the DfE not having said much yeah. yet. But I think that they're waiting for, for various things to happen before they, yeah. they make... I don't think that they've got a plan. I don't think that they saw this coming, and I don't think that they've got really a plan for how to reform and it's going these things take time so it's sort of not surprising but we're at a really interesting point aren't we in the in this trajectory and it doesn't look like this story is going away anytime soon so we'll see where it goes so anyway before we get into all of that let's start with the positives who would like to start and you you might talk about the framework about your own experiences either being inspected or as inspectors um, however you wish to interpret it, what's good about Ofsted currently? Um... <laughs> it, it's the currently that I'm, I'm struggling a bit with. <laughs> okay, all right. So maybe, maybe all right. Then, then let, let's 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 take the word currently off. Like out of your, I mean, you've already talked about some examples of this, yeah. Julie. Some of these really rigorous, incredibly robust induction process. This incredibly robust moderation process. So, so the, I guess the good could be like in in Ofsted's not too distant history, there has been, you know, really excellent practice, which perhaps we might get back to. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but is that is that something that you'd be happy with? Yeah, I think the the chance to uh, disseminate really good practice. I don't believe anything. I, I don't believe in uh, silver bullets, magic formulas, but. When you've been around so many hundreds of schools, people just have the benefit of that experience. I work as an advisor at the moment. It's just that I go around lots of schools. So the potential for people to uh, support, to disseminate great ideas, to encourage innovation, and also to, I'm always wanting when I, when I speak to people in schools, why are we here anyway? And they'll say, oh, we're here for the children. Yeah, but we want more than that. If we're saying we're here to promote these sort of basic skills, and skills is not, you probably, skills isn't a possible word at the moment. But you know, if we've got that, yes, okay. But actually, I think we're there to promote lifelong learning. We're there to instill a lifelong appetite for learning that's going to stay with the people, the, the young people that we we teach. I think that's what it's about. And I think that uh, in inspection, the potential is there, whatever form inspection takes, we've all got ideas. That's that's the potential because we've seen it happen because that's what, you, that's what it used to be like. And actually, in my experience, heads are hungry for that. They welcome that. They're looking for solutions. They're looking for great ideas. They're looking for innovation, they're looking for what works for their communities and their pupils. Yeah, I think they're looking for that encouragement, aren't they, as well? Uh, I mean, a colleague of mine, um, well, you, you both know uh, Stan Johnson, and Stan often says the story about, well, he often hears head teachers say, well, this, we've got this great project we're thinking of doing, but we'll wait until we've had our Ofsted before we start it. Yeah. And actually, I think that what, what um, I think, well, I, I'm sort of optimistic because, Actually, when I think about what uh, what schools 
I ha have had to face over the last few years. And when I visit them, they're still optimistic places. They're still full of very optimistic young people. Mm. They're still full of very optimistic teachers, you know, who are you know, battling hard to try and offer the best. Uh, and we know that there are bits that, are, that we will talk about today that are, are stopping them from giving their best at times. But actually still, it's that sense of optimism that is still out there and that I think is you know, it's quite remarkable, really, that they're, they're still doing that, you know. And when mm. I, like Julie, when I visit schools, I'm, you know, I, I don't come away from the schools. And some of the schools I visit are in some of the most challenging areas of the north. I, I generally come out thinking, wow, that was a really good, that's really good, you know. And I, I think there's something here about the... Uh, the, the media coverage of of some of the most challenging areas and the schools in those communities you know actually you, know, you need to get in there folks and see it you know don't don't believe the horror stories that you're hearing about you know which some people want to promote about behavior and, and all this stuff yeah attendance is low in some schools because actually the you know as as a country we haven't invested enough in the young people as we came out of covid you know, and actually they've got some of them got out of the habit of going to school, but we needed to make sure that there was something there in the offer that was a bit different to what they had before, you know, that probably would have brought them back in. You know, yeah. we, have, we, we simply have not invested enough in them. But having said all of that, you go into those schools, kids are they're, they're, kids are kids and they're just great. You know, they just want to they just want to share their their excitement. And, I, I you know, you feel as though just give these kids a chance because actually, you know, if the whole country was as optimistic as a year nine or a year 10 kid was, we've been a much better place, you know? So don't believe everything you read in the press about how bad it is. And, you know, about fights here and fights there, you know, that is not my experience. It, it goes on. It went on in my day. It probably went on in our days in schools, mm. but actually these are not schools out of control that, that, you know, get rid of that. That's not what I'm seeing. Yeah, I agree. I've I've worked in in a in one school that was in special measures, and um and I've also worked in outstanding and good schools. And you, there's very little difference. Like, <laughs> like there's so much good stuff happening in a so-called special measures school on the naughty step, and there's so much dodgy stuff happening in outstanding <laughs> schools. Like the overlap is just far greater than anybody would would realize. Um, so absolutely, you know, it's a really difficult job teaching and kids are challenging as well as sort of exhilarating and amazing people to be around. Um, but yeah, totally agree. And the thing that you said about about people often saying, oh, I've got this brilliant idea for a school improvement initiative, but we're in an offset window. And so we're going to not do this innovative stuff that we think the kids really need or will benefit from. You hear that all the time. Um, and that's maybe a common theme that that will emerge from these conversations that, you know, there's this, it's the way in which Ofsted sort of thwarts innovation and stops leaders from doing what they think is right for the kids in front of them. Um, that's definitely something that you hear a lot of. Um, so is there anything else that we that you would add to the positives column before we move into challenges? I think I think leaders, leadership is more mature. I mean, it's aware uh, and the, the challenges are greater. You know, we were saying before about my experience in, I mean, on a, in 1980, you know, it was quite regular to get, we had a pub at the end of the road. It's not there anymore, but Friday lunchtime, somebody said, do you fancy going for a pint? So we'd go down to the pub, you know, nowadays, 
you know, rightly, you know, leaders would have a view that that's unprofessional conduct, you know, and all of this, you know. But I think that leadership is more aware of itself and, and the processes that can lead to effective leadership. The challenges are greater, though. So that's, I think, the reasons why you know, some leaders are bailing out, are finding it too tough, you know, because actually leaders years ago didn't have quite the same accountability measures that they've got in place today. Um, but I think lead, leadership, I'm impressed by, you know, the numbers are not high. The numbers wanting to be senior leaders are not high. They're not as high as they used to be. But actually those that want it, they're hungry for it. You know, and uh, I, I'm impressed by the quality of their insight and and also their ambition. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I would echo all of that. Um, and and so, but it's interesting to note that. So, so Julie, you sort of said that it was the word currently that you were that you were struggling with a bit. And Frank, uh, in your answers, you were sort of saying like young people are really optimistic. The schools that you go into, they're not they're they're not as bad as people sometimes make out make them out to be. Leadership, you see lots of positives there, but you also haven't really pointed to that many positives in terms of like the current um state of Ofsted. And yet you were both sort of talking about something that was you were a part of in the 90s and early 2000s that was something that you were proud to be a part of. So let's move into the challenges then. What has happened? What do you see happening currently that you don't like the look of? Uh, what, what, what is Ofsted not doing that it should be doing? What is it doing that it shouldn't be doing? Uh, who, who would like to pick that up first? Go on, Julie, you go first. I feel as I've spoken too much already. So. Oh, no, it's all right, yeah. Actually, it's it is it's hard to know where to start with this one. I think we can say from from what we know about what's in the media at the moment. I, I'm going to say I don't know of a time when the relationship between Ofsted and schools has been as bad as it is now. And before we even talk about why and what that means and so on, we have to see that this this is a very very bad basis to be going in and making judgments about schools. So if we had to sort of separate some of the things, inspections are very high stakes. And, you know, spoke to a radio presenter not long ago, and he said, people keep saying this, and I don't know what it means. What does it mean, high stakes? Well, if your school gets two RI judgments or it gets an inadequate judgment, it's probably going to be under new management. You might lose your job. It's that serious. Other people might lose the job. Other people will leave. You'll face problems recruiting staff parents will take their kids away and he said wow that is high stakes I didn't realize it was like that you know so it's the way it's become more high stakes I think um and yeah it, the stress that comes from Ofsted the stories that are coming forward now are scary I wrote a couple of blogs in 2021 Frank and I talked a lot about them I got people writing to me confidentially saying, I agree with everything you're saying, but I can never go public uh, on this. I can never speak up. Um, I'm too scared. Ofsted are coming back. They'll take it out on me. Or my governors have said, I must never tell anybody about the terrible Ofsted we had and the damage it did. Uh, I must never tell anybody. You know, my MAT people, multi-commerce trust people have told me, they're not happy, but we've just got to pretend it's okay because Ofsted will come back and they will take it out on us. And I was thinking, wow, this is really unhealthy. 
People can't speak out because they use this phrase, Ofsted will come, they'll take it out on us. So that doesn't really smack of fairness anyway, does it? So we've now got this thing that's morphed into some sort of monster. Uh, part of it, I mean, Frank said something on Twitter today that really struck a chord with me, and that was if only Ofsted had got, when Ofsted resumed inspections after COVID, which was autumn term 21, if only they'd reported on what they were seeing rather than what they wanted to see. Because what we've got now is a lot of problems that have got much worse because Ofsted wanted to pretend it had never happened. I think one of the things that disturbs me most about Ofsted at the moment, I don't know um, if you're aware, James, of the, the crib sheets that were leaked last year. Oh, yeah. You know, sheets that were there to assist inspectors in asking the right questions uh some of them are are just really really worrying because what we were talking about with children being optimistic lifelong learners enthusiastic creative inquisitive if you look at the early years crib sheet you will see that there are things in there that are set to destroy any part of that and we don't know where this has come from i mean there are people that you know, are absolute gurus in early years. And, and I'm looking at this stuff saying, what, well, you know, and they're, they're saying the same, you know, it's actually very poor advice. Could you give an example? Is there anything that springs to mind? Is it like an explicit instance of something that's, that was in that early years crib sheet? Yeah. So there's a, this one thing that's uh, being discussed a lot at the moment, and it's about the, the, the Ofsted recommendation on the, on the crib sheet for early writing, so there's this notion that, um, you know, for instance, a child shouldn't be writing their name until they've learned the, you know, phonics part of that. But actually, we do get a lot of children coming to earlier who can already write their own name and they don't have to know that, you know, this this letter sounds like this. They just know their name. So. It was it's hugely restrictive and it says it's got to be engineered um, for success and it's got to be planned. And four-year-olds should be subject to dictation activities. And we're thinking, no, no, let's let's just have them. I actually cited um a thing from inspection where a little boy, you know, made some marks on a piece of paper and he says, This is real writing, he said to me. I said, is it? That's fantastic. He said, it's a story and I'm going to read it to you. And he read it to me and two of his friends and he stood and read it. And it was a story about a green dinosaur, just absolutely magical. So that's not happening, according to Austin. That shouldn't be happening because you should be only teaching the sounds in the order that they appear in your approved scheme. They shouldn't be writing their names on cards. They shouldn't be doing anything they're not familiar with. And it's all from the teacher. It's not from children watching each other learning. And early years is magical for that. So why are they telling inspectors to do that? Um, why are they saying things like, you know, there's a, a video where it says you've got to teach a, a, a little toddler how to use a shape sorter. No, because that's the whole point of it. It's that they're going to learn. I saw that this is the idea that knowledge has to precede skill, and they and like you say, even the word skill is sort of you know like the new um, like sort of what's the word like nemesis? It's, it's also not even considered to exist. It's just practiced knowledge. This idea it's that you need to there. you need the knowledge. Have you ever like somebody? I saw somebody put a tweet about that yesterday. Like, have you ever seen a kid with a shape shorter? They're just like mashing the square one into the circle one. <laughs> And then that doesn't work. Like, they don't need prior knowledge. Like, like you say, that's literally 
how those things work <laughs> is that you yeah. just like try them and then you know you learn experientially and then you're like oh right that one goes in there and it's satisfying when it does and you can see the learning happening you know um yeah they, they do seem to be struggling I agree with early years in particular there's been some very weird stuff also stuff around the knowledge of um of how to throw and catch balls was being framed in oh. the in the language of knowledge yeah count um, me out I mean I I think any four-year-old could teach me you know I'm just hopeless at that because my PE teachers were all having a smoke and just left us to it <laughs> so you know, uh, but yeah I think the other thing with early years is we have actual evidence that that inspectors are going into schools uh, and they I get a lot I mean a lot of, of people writing to me saying, the inspector came in two early years, it's a secondary specialist. I've looked at their bio, their secondary post-16 specialist. They've come into my early years setting and said, where's the curriculum plans for the three and four-year-olds in history? And we said, well, we don't have that because we do the earlier statutory framework. You know, you really should have these plans and they're demanding plans that, that the school doesn't need to have. They're making quite bizarre suggestions by you know going up to four-year-olds and saying, Tell me about what you did in um, in art last year. And I can't remember what they had for tea yesterday. And why do they <laughs> need to know what they did in art last year? And this thing about children in the early years having this subject knowledge is a problem. Even, and Ofsted's reaction when a group of the earlier specialists wrote to them was, basically, it's not happening. We don't believe that these inspectors are asking for this. And they produced a myth-busting document. Yeah. Last week, I looked at a report for a 43-pupil school in yeah. um, you know, remote rural place. A 43-pupil school is probably going to have two classes. Would you agree, Frank? It's probably yeah. going to have EY Key Stage 1 and then Key Stage 2. So you've got a lot of mixed-age group. Uh, work going on there you start reading this report oh it's a lovely school the children are so happy they come in the, they enjoy everything I know where this is going yeah and it's a grade three why is it a grade three because the curriculum does not including in the early years does not contain specific subject knowledge it's 43 children it's probably two or three teachers how can they be experts in all those subjects this is nonsense, and it's in a report. How did that report get through QA? Why aren't Oster picking up that report and saying, "Blimey, we need to have a word with these inspectors"? You know. Meanwhile, that school's, uh, you know, the the thing on the estate agent's window, it's not a good school, and yet everything in it says, "Looks like a great school to me." Yeah. So, so it seems to be that 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 phrase that you used earlier that about that um. That, did you did you tweet it, Frank? This idea that that if if Ofsted had gone into schools post COVID and they talked about what they were seeing rather than what they were wanting to see, and that seems to be a common theme, and it's it's something that came up in the first of these conversations that I had with Rebecca Leak. It's almost this idea that there's this game of like trying to guess what's in the inspector's head, and that there's that there's this idea that they're sort of they're essentially trying to catch people out, like if they're if they're going up to kids and saying what did you do in art last year or have you been taught about consent recently or whatever like it's just it's all very heightened and it sort of seems to be coming from this fearful anxious place and it's like right they haven't met that standard so we can mark them down and it seems to be like whatever the opposite of strengths based is it's not like appreciative inquiry it's like it seems to be just like a deficit model a, a series of, of landmines a series of traps a series of boxes that you can that you can fall short of ticking and therefore you're you're a bad school 
It seems it's, like it's that's been to... a, is that is that fair to say yeah. as people who've been on the inside of this? Is that is that a shift that you've seen a shift towards this more sort of catching people out mentality? Well, I, I think I, 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 there was always um, I was involved in quite a few frameworks. So it was always sort of raising the bar. But and there was always a slight I mean, a good example is the emphasis placed on governance. It's sort of in one framework, governors are critically important for the judgment on leadership. Suddenly the next framework, they're not, you know, um, and, and in a way, there's been that sort of fluctuating sort of position on some of these grades. But what this latest framework has done is it, it had this curriculum focus and we had the crazy situation, which I don't think we've ever had before where Ofsted were instructing schools on, in effect, you need your intent statement, you need your implementation. You know, all of these things were leading the profession in terms of what they needed to do to set their curriculum up, in effect, to get a successful Ofsted. Now, I don't recall anything quite like that happening. And you have to ask, why has that happened this time? And I think the reason why it's happened this time is because I think there is a, a, an ideological desire amongst some uh, from within government and some supporters of government who have in effect infiltrated Ofsted, have seen the power of making this happen. And actually they have then created a framework which in a way fit, felt at the time quite unbalanced that it was emphasized, obviously curriculum is important, the curriculum has been in every single framework since 1992, and it's been an important element. But what's happened is it's become top heavy in this inspection framework. So up to COVID, there was only a short window really before it, you know, I mean, the, the framework was, was implemented, but actually the full impact of it hadn't been felt, suddenly COVID came. So in this sort of unreal world, and now, you, you know, think people are realizing that we're starting to ask questions about, well, attendance is poor, isn't it? You know, we've got a problem with attendance. Funding's a bit of an issue, isn't it? Staff morale's a bit of an issue. Um, yeah, I'm not quite sure that actually, um, you know, uh, all of the support mechanisms like for special educational needs are in place. So these are sorts of things that you think, right, these are the sort of issues you'd expect, I would be expecting inspectors to write about in their reports. James, you will struggle like hell to read them in any report. And Julie and I read, I think we read probably for two terms, we read virtually every single primary and secondary inspection report. And we were finding weaknesses in those reports because of this top heavy nature of the curriculum. And we reached out, didn't we, Julie? We saw some blatant mistakes in judgments that were made, we wrote to, I think, 15 or 20 of them, inviting them to come and talk to us about what the process was like. And just to reinforce what Julie was saying, I think only two of them were willing to do it. Yeah. You know, so we have got now, and the, I think the reason why people didn't realize in Ofsted that they had a problem was very much around, well, who, you, if you've got an, if you've got an inspection business, you need some pretty experienced inspectors to help you do it. And what they've done is they've gone, they've played the curriculum card and the chief inspector has wanted to surround them herself with curriculum experts, not inspectors, experts who probably never done inspection in their lives. And actually they're then advising the chief inspector. And when you look at the other senior managers, many of them were still were there when Julie and I were there. 
so they're not recent inspectors they might they might lead an inspection business but they don't do inspections like julie and i did and they don't have enough senior leaders from schools in there as well so we've mm. got this sort of like it's it's not just one issue it's a com a culmination a combination of all of these issues being played out and this is why i feel as though whenever it hits the fan the credibility of senior leaders in fronting it up is and and the reason why they go to michael wilshaw he did inspect he was ahead you might not agree with everything he says but at least those two bits of it he knows about mm. get the senior leaders I, I tell you now get the senior leadership team from Ofsted and ask them when were you last ahead when did you last actually inspect and you will find a massive gap emerging and you think well you're going on good morning Britain I don't think so I think they're going to eat you alive so we're best to just quieten down use the I mean there's a valid reason why they might not want to go public but actually, if we take the, the terrible events that have happened recently, when I've seen chief inspectors and senior managers, they're not talking the language of leaders, current leaders, and they're not talking the language of inspection the way that I feel it is. It feels like it's a different process. It's just not, but actually, fundamentally, it's still the same. We're still inspecting schools, might have a different framework, but actually these are people that are, in my eyes are not credible. They're not credible, either as a leader of a school or as a leader of an inspection team. Interesting. So, so, so do you think I was going to ask about about what's happened, like the, 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 the like what, like how has this transition happened? But what you're describing is something that's really quite recent, that there's this re recent uh, you said that this recent infiltration of people with an ideological perspective that they, that they are, you know, like emphasizing certain things coming from an ideological understanding of like the importance of curriculum. It's often it's tied in with the knowledge rich curriculum and Ofsted sort of, you know, making pronouncements about like defining learning, like defining learning as a change in long-term memory. They've got this very sort of neo-traditionalist conception of what learning is, of what, of what education is. Um, so you're talking about something that's happened really quite recently. Is that fair to say like of this, under Amanda Spielman's? Um, I've, ne I've never known. I, I delivered, I I was leader of the pro, uh, of the framework team for for the two inspections in 2012 the frameworks that came out then and the last one was for Michael Wilshaw there was Michael's view was always it was around leadership you know um, he never he never pushed that curriculum model you know he he basically he, he understood I think and and I think this is where it morphed in 2005 where we we, we introduced shorter inspections, which were based on school self-evaluation, which is basically saying, do schools you know, go in, give a sense of, do the schools know themselves well enough to improve? You know, that to do that, you've got to engage with, with leaders. You know, you, we haven't got the answers. You've got the answers. What's the evaluation looking like? Have you got the right issues? Yes, you have. Okay, well, get on with it then. <laughs> You know, there were there, there will always be some failures in the system. You know, there, there will always be what's called special measures schools. They require special measures to provide a satisfactory education. But actually, the vast majority of schools are not in that position. And like you were saying, James, the gap between some of the weaker alleged weaker schools and some of your better schools, it's very thin.
you know, and mm. it may be just one or two issues that are stopping the school from getting what might be the lauded great grade, you know, that they're after. Um, but I feel as though we're, 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 we're in a bad position now because we haven't got sufficient expertise of inspection and of leadership. And the focus has moved to curriculum, not leadership. So I think we're in a sort of bad place. And, and I do feel as though it probably does need to be broken up. Mm. Um, um, I think that the brand is in a really bad place. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I, I think that, I, that it was quite recently, I sort of was more in the reformist camp, but I think that the brand has become so toxic um, in recent weeks that, that there needs to be some kind of a, of a reset. Um, so, so there's something else that's that's shifted recently, um, which was a very live issue in this in this recent case um, of Caversham Primary School um, in Reading and the, the tragic circumstances around Ruth Perry's uh, death, and um, and that's safeguarding, which has become, it seems, much more of a of a focus in recent years than it has been previously, um, and it's become a sort of like a gatekeeper issue. So like even if everything else is good or outstanding, if your safekeeping, if you, I beg your pardon, if your if your safeguarding is perceived to be weak, if your record keeping is perceived to be inadequate, then the whole grading is inadequate. That's something else that's happened quite recently. I wonder where that's come from. I don't know if you could speak to that possibly, Julie. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure um, where it's come from in terms of um, the most recent cases and, I certainly know of, uh, and I've contacted well before uh, Caversham actually, I contacted Frank about some schools inspected last summer who went to inadequate um, on the basis of safeguarding systems. Um, we've felt we've been talking for a long time about how we think safeguarding in terms of compliance with, you know, the, the requirements is something that can come out of the inspection of the quality of education. It's something that can be looked at separately and should be looked at, in my view, should be looked at separately and should be looked at more frequently than schools are inspected. Uh, because actually the requirements say you, you have to do this and there's a lot of it. You're keeping children safe in education is quite, uh, you know, a, a, a big document, but it's a fairly straightforward to go in and say, are you doing it? And actually Frank will probably remember at one time, it was some years ago, Ofsted used to put a specialist safeguard inspector on a team for a day or half a day, and that's all they would do. So, you know, that sort of set a bit of a precedent there. I don't know. I mean, there are all sorts of theories knocking about. Again, it's to do with the high stakes thing about why this is happening. But I do know schools where they felt, going back to the deficit model thing you mentioned, James, about um they were quizzing up staff, they were asking them uh, uh, questions and they were looking to trip people up. So an example of that I can give you, and it's happened to my knowledge in two schools, is that they say to a teacher, what would you do if you suspected a case of FGM had actually happened in your school? Mm -hmm. Now, the correct answer, according to keeping children safe in education, is you phone the police. You go straight to the police. Okay, but in two cases, the uh, the teachers said, well, I'd tell the safeguarding lead and then I'd phone the police. Ah, got you, you're wrong. You should go straight to the police. 
Now, they're going to go to the police. So it's a bit of a technicality. But again, they, oh, yeah, you got that wrong. Goes to the safeguarding lead. Hey, your people don't know keeping children safe in education. It, it was very obviously coming over as a trick, as a, as a trap. You know, in one case, the teacher was invited for feedback, got told they weren't having feedback. But can we take this opportunity to ask you about safeguarding? That was in one inspection that happened. And the the other thing is it's not as straightforward as it seems because as far as the FGM thing is concerned, if you suspect it might be about to happen in the future, you must go to your DSL and that then becomes a social services matter, not the police. So it's not, it, it, you know, it is, it's a little bit more complex. If the police get to know within minutes, you, you're all right. But it's, to me, a ridiculous way, a ridiculous way of, of bringing schools into there. You're not doing this. It's not good enough. As a school, you're inadequate. And as we've seen, the head takes that. You know, my leadership is in because the safeguarding comes within the leadership and management judgment. Yeah. I'm going to take that to heart. I think also there's the issue here that there was, um, um, I'm just surmising now, so please take what I'm saying, you know, in, in, in that vein. But the new framework, um, there was a desire to sort of inspect those outstanding schools that had not been inspected for uh, 10, 12 years. And uh, also the, the framework doesn't really emphasize anymore the sort of uh, the attainment, the progress measures in quite the same way. So it would have been easy, relative, no, I'm not saying easy, but you could have focused a lot more on that element if that was still a significant part of the framework. And you would do that if, you, for example, if you had a grammar school that, you know, that, that appeared to be doing quite well, but actually there were sort of like a block of kids in that school who were not making the progress that they could. And that, that data would have been quite useful to establish the sort of like a, a theory or a, a hypothesis which you could ask your inspectors to go out and dig around in now all of that sort of terrain within this framework had been lost so in a way this desire to sort of well we've got these schools haven't inspected them for 12 years you know we, we've got far too many of these outstanding schools we're going to you know actually the easy i don't mean this in that sense but one part that you could say where well, you can't contest it is something over safeguarding yeah. You know, so in effect, yeah. it's, you know, it's a done deal. You know, we've that's what we found. I'm really sorry. The framework tells us we've got to do this. Now, I'm not saying now that safeguarding is very, very important. And the point that Julie made is so important that we shouldn't be leaving it for 12 years to decide whether or not there are <laughs> safeguarding concerns in the school. So in a way, I think the, the problems that it's created in the unfairness, I think, in terms of the way, it, again, the, you know, you create a framework which is far too top heavy. You know, it's got a couple of these sort of golden tickets. If you don't get the golden tickets, folks, you're down, you know. And actually, previously, it was much more of a rounded judgment, you know. And and I think we, we Julian and I know of one framework where it was, it was basically perm five from seven judgments. If you get five of them as good, then you're fine. Do you remember that one, Julie? Uh, but, but actually, that I think that one... But you remember that. I but mean, it was, I remember it well, but it actually, that was the Every Child Matters. It was built around Every Child Matters. And I think the thing is, is that this is that created this sort of problem now um, in terms of, you know, Ofsted wanting to reduce the number of outstanding schools. 
justifying why it should spend more money on these schools that have previously been left alone. You know, I think that in a way, somebody should have seen that that was a potential problem. And actually, I think if Julie and I had constructed the framework, I'm not saying we would have found all of and everything would have been fine. But I think we would have thought, ah, actually, we could get some pretty unstable judgments emerging here because we haven't mm. got the data. We haven't got the progress data. We're not really getting into all of these classrooms because they're doing these deep dives as well, which again can destabilize. You know, James, you might have five fantastic departments and five that aren't so very good. We roll up and we say we're going to look at the five really poor. Yeah, it's just chance that we've got yeah. a design technology uh, colleague on our team he's desperate to do the uh, deep dive and you get oh it's un unfortunately didn't do history because we're really good but all of that played into it as well yeah. you know so i think that yeah. there is uh you know this whole thing around safeguarding and the grade ones is uh has been it it, it, it would have been fairly predictable i think for seasoned inspectors to to identify that potential problem emerging right yeah i can see that and it, and it does it, it i mean it doesn't take a moment's consideration, does it, to see? I've got the Caversham page on the Ofsted site here. The recent inspection, November 22, inadequate. Previous inspection was in 2009, like 13 years previously. Like, how can how can you think for a moment that it's okay to to be, you know, the regulator who sort of goes around and and you know decides whether schools are safe or not? Once every 13 years. And to think that you're doing your job in keeping those children safe, like it's just such I, a ridiculous I, I, system. I think also one of the things is a bit of a, um, I've never said this before, so this is a, this is a, a first. An exclusive. An exclusive. But actually every year Ofsted would have done a risk assessment on all of the schools, right? So they could easily have chosen to inspect it many more of those grade one schools I, julie and i could create a criteria that would easily have swept up a lot of those yep. so in a way you know that it, and, and it says in the report you know this is a new framework and whatever and and, and I, I do know in the past they've said you know it's um you know it was the uh, uh was it a government decision or whatever there was a decision not to inspect these schools but actually they they don't reference the fact that well, we risk assess them all every year and decided not to inspect them. You know, Sorry, how do, they, how do they do that risk? So currently, Ofsted risk assess every school in the country every year. They they, they did do before. They did. Yeah, they did do. How and can they course, do that without inspecting them? Well, you could look at you could look at uh, attendance figures. You could look. It could be a trigger. Uh, three three new heads in the last three years. Hmm, right, interesting, isn't it? Or um, it could be a, a, a persistent absence. It could be a drop in performance. It could be, you know, the data can take you down nationally to how well are kids on free school meals doing? How well are those that perform really badly at key stage two? How well are they performing in the school? It, you can really cut it, slice it right down. And if you're looking at sort of, uh, as a colleague of ours, Adrian will tell you, um, you know, the grammar schools, you know, there is, quite a lot of underachievement in some of those grammar schools. It would have been very easy to unpick some of the data to identify schools that probably needed a visit. Now, who knows? I don't know whether the, the school that we're referencing there would have been triggered by that. 
but but actually i think that you know this idea that ofsted have said well we we had permission in effect not to inspect these outstanding schools ignores the fact that they did risk assessments on them and, right. and, and would you expect the government would expect i would expect that parliament expects ofsted to have an oversight over schools even if they're not inspecting them they have to report annually i think still you know within the an annual report and and actually i think this is where you know the, the whole thing has become a little bit murky as to you know what its role is. is is it about actually a curriculum development because there are these sort of curriculum guides and things you know uh, which have been produced recently we've never oh, it's been many years since we've had those but actually a lot of that evidence is not inspection evidence you know and what Ofsted should be doing is just mm -hmm. report chief inspector just report on what your inspectors have seen not yeah, they've got this like research de department now, haven't they? They're publishing these research summaries and things. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's that's my sort of instinct is that it's sort of the, the remit has become so swollen that it's looking at all of this stuff, which is all sort of quite intellectually interesting. You can see why they would want to be, you know, doing this interesting research based. But that's stuff. your job, James. You're well, a researcher. <laughs> exactly. You know, it's Get your it's hands not Ofsted's job to be well, doing Well, I agree. I don't think it is their job. And I think that the, their, their remit has become so so bloated that they're not able to essentially do their their, their basic function, which is to make sure that, that these schools are keeping kids safe, which yeah. seems to be the surely it should be slimmed right down. Um to, to, well, I don't know. I, I say surely. That's that's my current take on it. So so I need to wrap this up in about 15 minutes or so because I've got another call coming <laughs> up. <for> that. <laughs> so um, the the chief inspector's job is up at the moment. So I, I'm assuming that you've that you've assuming that you've put in your 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 application for a job share, Frank and Julie. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. What's going to be in your first hundred days of office? Like, what would you do to fix this? Uh, this current situation that we find ourselves in i think it needs as you say it's a it needs a rebrand it needs a sort of chassis up restoration you know if it was a if it was a car you would be looking at taking it right down and then building it up again listening to the many many um ideas that are coming forward um and I personally, I would not be afraid to go pretty radical. As I say, I would like safeguarding to be looked at separately as a compliance thing, and I'd like it done reasonably frequently. As far as the actual quality of education is concerned, I think we've got to go back to a more rounded view. But one of the reasons that inspectors, um, you know, head teachers like to go and inspect is because they get to see other schools and head teachers love to see each other's schools. And there's a lot of this stuff coming forward about, uh, you know, peer review and the role of peer review. I wouldn't like to put anything more solid on it than that at the moment, but I think there's a role for that. I think there's a role of the inspector to sort of be the chair of all that, if you think, and be the moderator of all that and keep that, you know, in the direction we want it to go. Uh, do we need grades? That's up for discussion. Do we need an overall effectiveness grade? I think possibly not. Um, and it's interesting that in some of the previous frameworks, we've had overall effectiveness and capacity to improve, if you remember, which is a big one. I still think if you go to any organization, any successful organization anywhere in the world, whether it's, uh, you know, an, an education establishment or a big business, they will always say, you cannot do the job unless you know yourself well. And this self-evaluation thing, 
has never gone away. I think the ability to look with assistance from others, if necessary, to look at what's going on and have an objective view. This is what we do really well. This is what we really need to improve urgently. I think that's uh, that's got to go back to being at the, the basis of everything. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I'm really pleased that Julie supports the self-evaluation approach because, you know, I've been a big fan of that. Um, but I think that also, I, I think if I was, if Julie and I were in charge, um, I'd, I'd certainly disband that curriculum unit. I'd, I'd refresh the senior leadership team. I'd, I'd also demand that the board en masse resign and we appoint a new board um you know because at the end of the day these things don't happen you know in businesses and, and organizations that are governed well and and i think that there are sort of things here which are sort of saying to me that there's a bit of an ethical collapse occurring in the in the organization somewhere i'm not in on it anymore and it's quite the same way um but i think also uh i i would also like the idea of this peer review being part of the evidence that a school would draw on in terms of saying how effective it was. And also say that um, I'd really welcome, um, I, I think I would have an expectation that every school in the community would help other schools in their community, you know, so that it wasn't so much a sort of, um, in effect, we're looking at a good overall education service as opposed to one that highlights on a framework, those that are doing really well and those that aren't doing quite so well, you know, um, we've we've got in a situation where we do need to make it more equitable and and more supportive of each other. Mm. So I think that we should really be quite critical of schools that don't support others in their community, you know, as if to say, well, I'm quite happy that school down the road is not very good because actually we get all their good kids. You know, there's a bit of that thinking going on and. And actually, the service, the education service, the country requires effective schools, you know, not some, there will be some that are probably better than others, but we need to be trying to level that out a little bit more, because I think we make more progress as a country, and young people get a better deal, if actually we could assure that they're all going to, I'm not going to say good schools, but pretty decent schools, you know. Yeah, yeah, completely. And that's something else that you, 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 Sort of talked about earlier, um, or you, you almost touched upon earlier about the way in which um, Ofsted grades like often reflect prior attainment and socioeconomic status of the local community. I remember seeing a graph a while ago, and it was like um, prior attainment on the on the on the x-axis, like GCSE attainment. So this was secondary school GCSE attainment of this axis, and it was almost almost like so it was like average average SAT scores and average. GCSE scores and it was almost a perfect positive correlation and then they color coded them according to their Ofsted judgment and all the green ones all the uh, the Ofsted outstanding ones were all the ones in these lovely leafy suburbs with you know high prior attainment and, and middle class intakes um it's like so there's something about the methodology of the that just seems to be deeply unfair like if you if you could if you could if you i've often thought of this is like if you if you could imagine it as like a channel four show where you like blindfold a team of like four inspectors and you just helicopter <laughs> helicopter them into the playground of a school they don't have any prior attainment data nothing they just got to go around and uh and look at what's happening in that school and see if they can match what the most recent offset thing was and i would 
I would hazard a guess that they would get it the same no more often than chance because of, because like you say there's so much there's so much sort of baggage that comes with it um so there's something about the methodology of these of these reports that um sorry the, the inspections that we need to somehow I don't know it's hard that isn't it like because like, obviously we can't do that we can't just helicopter blindfolded inspectors into schools do you have any thoughts on how we could make the actual process of an inspection fairer like we've, we've gone from like you were saying you know um from week-long inspections led by subject experts to you know often what is it a day and a half an inspection on very short notice with people who are often operating outside of their area of expertise um, how would you tighten up the actual processes of inspections themselves? I would say that, and it links with what we've been saying about the COVID uh, thing, that uh, we've got to shift from schools are using this as an excuse to this is genuinely the school's context. And it's this idea about, you know, I, I was saying about COVID, it's not an excuse, it's a reason Yes, we've got so much more in terms of mental health problems for these children. Yeah, COVID's not an excuse for that. It is an absolute reason for that. Whatever the complexities were, what those children went through. So inspectors have got to stop looking at curriculum documents and putting 90% of the value on that. Actually look at the school community and what's been done for them. And when the, when the... I mean, it's it's difficult. I know school leaders that do make things sound like they're excuses. And Ofsted are, whoa, you know, no excuses. And I get that. But actually, the reality is pretty bad for some families, for some children. I don't think inspectors always know that. I think there's a lot of complexities also tied up with the competing multi-academy trust systems that's going on at the moment. We've got to get rid of that. But actually, you know, the more flexible we make it, the better it's going to be. Because at the moment, Ofsted are getting things wrong. They're getting grades wrong. And until we get, we take away the idea, because if they're getting some of it wrong, how do we know which ones they're getting right? How do we know which ones the estate agents are saying are the right ones? So yeah. I think it's about, we used to have a progress measure called contextual value added. Yeah. And, uh, you know, all these progress measures have, have been, you know, swings and roundabouts, but contextual value added, you could get a school in like the worst part of the, you know, most deprived part of the country. And if they had a high CVA, then you knew they were, they were doing, you know, good things for the children. So this wasn't perfect, but I think it's better than what we've got now. Yeah. Mm. I tweeted about this today, James. I mean, I was reminded of it that because I do work for the Northern Powerhouse Partnership. We have engaged with um, what's now Professor George Leckie at the University of Bristol, who started to look at the Progress 8 measure that was being used by the government or the DfE, um, Ofsted, uh, to determine how much progress was being made by students. And then he, he just put other factors in, like the number of children with special educational needs, number of children with EAL, you know, the number of children who perhaps had only been at the school for two or three years. All of these factors go into an algorithm. And uh, we produced, uh, Northern Powers Partnership produced, uh, I think two years running, a fairer league table. And there is one school that is now closed in Cheshire that was top or very close to the top. No, it's the most improved school. That was it. It rose, there were 300 
and 3,300 3, and something secondary schools. And this, this school had the greatest rise in performance, you know, from right down at the bottom using the government's measure into the fair elite table. And actually that school no longer exists because it was closed because of the poor previous performance. And, and all it is, is an algorithm. And it's a very, very crude algorithm. And, and actually what we, in a way, if I, I, I think a focus should be much more on those kids that we know have a fair chance of not getting a good deal. So those are kids who are probably long-term disadvantaged that, that they've been, you know, the parents from Benefam to claim free school meals for them, special educational needs, you know, um, uh, gypsy Roma families. You start getting a focus on those, the ones where actually you know, these are the ones that we know the system is telling us. These are the ones that often the system fails these children. If if a focus of inspection was, well, how well are they doing? How well are they doing? And I tell you now, because of the fact that many of these children exist in some of our most deprived communities, those schools are on it. Because if they're not on it, they'll lose the school. And it's the ones then that starts to draw out those that are sort of perhaps in the more affluent areas that don't have quite those numbers where actually I think we'd start to find some real weaknesses in provision. And that actually could start to balance out, balance up the, the process, you know, because I think we'll find that some of our very best practice is in, is in some of the most challenging communities and some of our worst practice, basically there's no practice, you know, you're in the, you're in the flow of it. There's no extra provision for you. That's where actually I think we'll find some real weaknesses. So I think that it's just, what do you want to put in that algorithm? You know, and, and, and in a way, a framework, I've said framework, is an algorithm at the end of the day. You know, Amanda Spillman, I think, wrongly has put too much weight on the curriculum, probably, you know, unbalanced the safeguarding judgment. But that's all an algorithm at the end of the day. Michael Wilshaw would have said, for me, it's all about leadership. Get good leadership. We've probably got some chances for some future improvement. We're probably on a stronger wicket, you know. Um, but, but I think it's just where we go with it. Um, but I think that we should focus much more on what we know. We, uh, years and years and years of evidence is telling us there are there, and, and in a way, the country needs the, for its economic future as much as anything else, as well as the individual needs. But it needs to get enable these young people to get the best chance they can to actually contribute to society going forward. Yeah, yeah, completely. Well, thank you for that. Um, that's been really, really insightful. I feel like we could indeed chat about this all day. There's so much more to talk about, um, but we are going to have to wrap it up. Or else I, I just say, James, when, when Julie and I are the first co-chief inspectors in the future, because I think what's going to happen, they're going to look indeed. at all the applications and they're going to say, you know, I think Frank and Julie could probably do a better job. So when we get that post, we're going to bring you on and we're going to do an exclusive with okay. the two new chief inspectors. Done, done deal. I can, I can be your tea boy. <laughs> that, sounds, that sounds good for you. And if I can get Friday afternoons off, that'd be, that'd be perfect. We'll, we'll, meet, we'll meet you in the pub on Friday lunchtime. <laughs> bring back lunchtime drinking. That's what we need to do. Well, can I just say all the schools in the Highlands do finish at lunchtime on a Friday? So yeah. thanks for that, yeah. How much enlightenment above north of the border, honestly, and west of the border, some exciting stuff happening. We didn't get a chance to look at that, what they've done in, with Estin in Wales and in Northern Ireland recently, changes to the inspectorate. The answers are in the room, as it were, you know. Yes. 
Um, hopefully we'll see some movement on this soon because it's it can't continue, can it? Um, it's not good. Well, thank you both. Um, I've really enjoyed chatting with you um, and I'll be in touch soon.